Hi, I'm Sahel Janasari, a migration uh, researcher and activist. And today I'm hosting the Qualitative Open Mic podcast very kindly within the Qualitative Applied Health Research Center's structures. And this series is on interpretation. So we're going to explore the art of interpreting qualitative health data. We're going to share insights on achieving conceptual depth with different types of data and methods, integrating qualitative finding with quantitative data, and using lived experience in interpretation. So hopefully through our conversations, we'll open up this black box of analysis and interpretation and make things a little clearer. So today, we are very lucky to have with us Shira. Uh, Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Shira Birnbaum. I'm a associate professor. I teach qualitative research methods in the School of Nursing at Rutgers University, which is the large state university in New Jersey. I'm right outside New York City in the city of Newark. If you've flown to the United States, you may have landed here. Great, thanks. And can you tell us a bit more about your research, your work? Where do you fit into this interpretation conversation? Well, I've written a few different uh, books representing a few different kinds of methods. My first book was an ethnography that I wrote that many years ago. My second book was basically phenomenological in its orientation. My more recent book was a narrative analysis. I support a lot of clinical groups who are doing clinical research. I've supported grounded theory, a lot of basic descriptive mixed methods work. Yeah, so that's the kind of that's the kind of work I do, really kind of a jack of all trades. And I and I teach both in an intro uh, doctoral level class and an advanced doctoral level class. I supervise dissertations. Great. So that's three books. Mm-hmm. Nice. So I want to ask you, what are some common pitfalls or misconceptions from health researchers when trying to do their interpretation, do their analysis, and to try and go beyond this sort of descriptive coding and, and category labeling, labeling that we often get stuck in? Well, the the biggest pitfall that I encounter has to do with the default assumptions about the nature of of data. Uh, When I tell students I want them to go beyond sorting the label headings, some of them just sort of panic a little bit because they're not exactly sure what what I'm talking about. They're not exactly familiar with what that means. I work with clinicians mostly nurses. Most of them are pretty advanced in their in their career. They're very expert. They're people who've spent many decades collecting data and reporting data. They've taken 100 million medical histories, for example. But uh, when you're interviewing somebody for a medical history, you're looking for specific facts, you know, pieces of information that you're going to enter into a chart. There's a, a blank space, a, a blank line somewhere waiting for that entry. That is the answer to an established question. That's a category that already exists and it exists in in a conventional form. So that's the framework from which my students uh, approach information. That's the sort of default concept. You have a question, you get an answer, you fill in the blank and you go collecting something. It's given to you and you transfer it. You know, you transfer it to the page or to the computer. But what my students have not had an opportunity to do that much, uh, and this is the case for for many people in healthcare, is to consider other frames for understanding information. They haven't tried on a different perspectival hats, so to speak. They haven't had a chance, for example, to pause to consider elaborate systems of invisible rules and norms, beliefs that that stru- are structuring the social encounter and flavoring the so-called data 
that the encounter generates, how those norms exclude some material or push it to the background. Respondents in an interview draw upon a bank of symbols and, and cultural references when they describe experiences or symptoms in healthcare. And um, these are socially mediated. They, they don't come from thin air. Uh, people answer questions using language that embodies more than just the straight answer to your question. They deploy from a range of repertoires of self-representation, the, the hero, the victim, the striver, the team player, the fighter, you know, the one who endures, for example. You know, the information that you get reveals not only a self-representation, but also something about the universe of possible representations that the culture and the time and the place, the historical period, make available in the room at the time. People make sometimes fairly strategic use of tropes in the culture, which reflects their internal system of assumptions about what you also know, which is, of course, part of the data that moves you toward interpretation rather than description. Another issue is, is narrative form. My students have not done a lot of thinking about how a story gets told, which is just as important as the manifest content that's spoken? Was it past tense or present? At what point in time does the story open? You know, in this particular telling, at what place, in what context does it open? Where is the narrator situating himself at this particular moment in his observations of what he's describing to you? How does the story close? Is there a narrative arc? Is it a quest? Is it a story about an epic hero? Is it a love story, a story of something lost and found? My students are very able and advanced in many areas, but not many of them arrive in my classroom already having been equipped with a vocabulary that provides uh, perspectival flexibility on narrative and narrative text. So we get stuck because their, their lenses haven't been built yet. A particularly complex concept in interpretation is the, the dynamism of the interview context. It, you know, if you've been collecting information from people for many years, it's very difficult to suddenly imagine that right in the process of telling you something, people are moving toward their own understanding, right? Their meaning is itself dynamic and emerging as they externalize it for you. Many of my students have um, participated in, uh, you know, or they've organized surveys in their organizations. Uh, you know, healthcare in the United States is built around competition for patient satisfaction ratings, right? So the assumption is that uh, perceptions and opinions exist out there. They're already formed and you go and you pluck them out and you code them and you count them. Uh, but to interpret narrative, you have to regard meaning as an act of creation where the telling is the process and it's morphing and evolving with each retelling into something potentially new. That is so destabilizing. You know, many people in mental health fields, right, understand that meanings evolve. For, for people, you know, accustomed to understanding spoken words as having, you know, ontological stability, that's a big shift. That's a really big change to make. So the first challenge is to provide a vocabulary that makes it possible to rethink textual information, it gives my students tools to move toward a more interpretive stance, which, of course, leads to questions of pedagogy and supervision. Yes, and that, that is uh, one of the focuses of this uh, episode, to think about how supervisors, mentors, perhaps colleagues can um, support each other in reaching more interpretive depth. I just wanted to, before I, well, perhaps related to that, I wanted to pick up on this um, experience you've had that people uh, coming from a, a clinical background 
have uh, perhaps less of a vocabulary or less of a um you know they haven't been trained to have this understanding of um maybe social political contexts or histories or these sort of things that might muddy the truth of the of, of the of the meanings of what someone is telling you i find that to some extent surprising maybe not surprising and also surprising because it feels like perhaps this is an issue which goes beyond simply research and to if you are working with a in a clinical context if you're working with people working with a patient then surely those those sort of structural understandings are going to be really key in delivering a good service good health care so it feels like if they're they're missing at the point of research that's bad but probably it, it's it's even worse because this it seems like an essential skill it kind of relates to things around like cultural humility would you know and and it's something that as far as I understand, clinicians are more thinking about more. But yeah, so I'm I'm a bit I'm I guess I'm a bit surprised. And um I wanted to ask you, what's the sort of variation? Do you think it's like a, a flat rule that the clinicians perhaps uh, are extracting information in a different way and interpreting things in a different way? Or perhaps there's some variation depending on people's backgrounds. I, I don't know. Well, I think there's variation in people's backgrounds. I mean, many people are highly they're highly culturally sensitive but still have a rather positivist understanding of information of data so do you think that there's something inherent about medical training and positivism yes i i think that medical training is by necessity quite positivist i mean you want one needs facts right in order to make clinical decisions one needs to 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 know that the blood pressure is an actual reading of something right in order, right so there are many many ways in which we sort of come to rely on the the stability of of information that's that's how you know the last several hundred years of scientific advances have happened right based on those sort of assumptions about information we we need those positivist assumptions so I, I feel like, okay, there's a problem that you've identified, but what can supervisors, mentors, teachers, in terms of pedagogy, what can be done to support people with interpretive depth? So there's a teaching part, the foundation that has to be built when students are taking courses. And then there's the supervision part, which comes in a little bit later uh, when the students are designing and conducting research and engaging in analysis. And that part is a thousand times more labor intensive. So I'll talk a little bit about the teaching strategies and then we'll get to the supervision. So I teach an intro class and also an advanced class. We always have a few weeks at the beginning where we're not talking about how to do qualitative research. We're just lingering in the what. And I call it boot camp because we do a whole lot of reading. As I said before, my, my students tend to be advanced clinicians. Maybe when they were teenagers, you know, they took a sociology course, you know, maybe they took an anthropology course or literature course. But for the most part, you know, that was beginner level stuff. They used textbooks. Maybe they read a you know, a few of the classics. So before we engage in any kind of interpretation, we read some examples of different kinds of qualitative research. And I focus especially on, you know, the more interpretive qualitative research. I introduce them to critical perspectives, which may be new to them. And we just spend some time reading and they read more of the what 
right? So that they have a, a fuller a battery of, of ideas about what's out there. And that builds their capacity. What kind of data, you know, led to such and such an insight? What was the unit of analysis here? What was excluded from the observations? And there are opportunities here to do direct comparisons, right? I'll have to take a descriptive study and hold it sort of side by side with a deeply interpretive, you know, phenomenological study, and then maybe, a, you know, a critical analysis with a more sociological focus, right? Let's say, a, let's say I, I'm looking at the papers on the lived experience of, I don't know, peritoneal dialysis, let's say, right? I'll do, you know, a whole two papers side by side, and we'll do an in-depth, you know, comparative reading, um, the same topic sort of done in a different way. And the students can begin to see the difference between a study that shows what it's like to live with an illness compared to a study about the lived experience of an illness, that the amazing structures of consciousness that play in the background and give definition to the thing. Those are preparatory activities. They're quite important. They signal, you know, we're on a new planet here and the rules are somewhat different from, you know, what you grew accustomed to in, in your clinical work. So um, I've tried a few different activities with my classes over the years where I, I have students, you know, read transcripts from various scenarios. I have them play out different perspectives. That's part of my teaching. Great. Thank you. Um, and so you, you've got a couple of examples for us, I think. This is a very U.S. U.S.-based example, so forgive me, but I I think your listeners will get the point. So Bill Clinton was the 42nd president of the United States from 1993 to 2001. Regardless of how you feel about his politics or his policies, his, his personality, whatever, it doesn't matter. You can't deny that the man was very, very smart, really just quite exceptional. So he came from one of the poorest rural areas in the United States, from a family with no education no social status. And when he was just a few months old, his father was killed in a car accident and his mother was left alone. So his mother, Virginia, left the boy with relatives and she went to a nearby city to study nursing. And she became a nurse. And then she, when she was done with her studies, she came back and she she got her son and she raised him and he's a bright boy and she's a doting mom and, and history happens and he becomes president of the United States. So Maybe like late 92, early 1993, after the election, news reporters were fascinated by Bill Clinton's mother because it's extraordinary, right? You rarely see this kind of a story, right? And one day on the radio, a journalist is interviewing her and she's got this very thick, strong, rural accent, right? That marks her social class, marks her region. And the reporter says to her, your son's been elected president of the United States. You must be so proud. Looking back on his life, what, tell me, what are the things that made you most proud of him? And this woman doesn't skip a beat, she says in her thick accent. I was never prouder than the day he was born. Now, I think at that moment, any mother who was listening stopped dead in her tracks because the reporter got an answer to the question. But I tell my students, let's take a look at what this answer is. So we start with, based on what you've heard, how are you going to code it? How, what, what, what are the meaning elements you pick up in this in this exchange, right? And of course, they, they all say, well, most proud day he was born, right? A hundred percent, that's what they come up with. And I say, but let's think about this for a minute, right? Let's Let's go back and look at what else is happening in this exchange. Can we talk about it? And first we notice that actually the answer referred to an episode in which 
Bill Clinton, the president of the United States, didn't play any role at all, actually. All he did was passively slide out of a hole, right? The mother is the one who did all the work, right? She's the one who labored, right? So we see that this woman responding to a question that was ostensibly focused on her son gave instead a scenario in which she herself is the central player. And the court action is not with the man who's the president of the United States. It's like saying, I don't care if he's president. When it counted most, I was the one who did all the work. It's actually hilarious. And you know what? There isn't a mother on this earth who doesn't hear that and register some note of recognition, right? Of this fabulous little twist. When we hear this on the air, you know, we get a sense of where this man's brilliance actually originated, right? Because this is an extremely funny and very clever answer. Without telling the reporter on air that his question is stupid, without embarrassing him, this mother has managed to introduce just a touch of sarcasm, right? poking fun at this question, but without saying so directly. Right? We see a woman here who understands comedy, knows how to time a punchline. We have made an interpretation. But so now here's another love, right? Let's push it up another notch, right? Let's just stretch a bit and wonder, is there a note feminist consciousness here? Is there some kind of subtle, maybe even unconscious challenge to the great man theory of history, right? An attempt to valorize a woman's labor in the contact of this obsession with world power? And what about this? As any mother knows, a mother's pride evolves. Every moment of a child's life brings new surprises and new ways of feeling amazed by your kid. Pride is dynamic for a mother. You wake up every day and you can't believe how amazing your kid is that moment. And that continues to happen. I have kids in their 30s. I I still feel that. So there's nothing episodic about a mother's pride. It's absolutely dynamic and it adjusts to to the situation, right? So now we kind of wonder, are we seeing signs here of a disconnect? Does the question itself reflect some kind of understanding of pride that is, you know, maybe not in sync with Virginia Clinton's understanding? So now Virginia Clinton, of course, said absolutely none of this, right? She didn't even imply any of this, right? This is our interpretation. But with an interpretive ear, we begin to detect very vaguely, right, the inkling that something is happening here beyond a question being asked and an answer being given. And it's not readily codable. It's just more complex than the first answer that we would initially arrive at. Completely speculative, uh, uh, you know, as a conversation. It's way, way beyond anything we know from listening to, you know, to the transcript of an interview. But just from having a conversation like this, students begin to sort of break through to an awareness of other ways of listening, that there are other, other levels of listening. They see that interpretation is emergent. It starts as a kind of unformed hunch that gets planted in the in the back, back, back of your mind, and you have to let it sit and stew. And it might over time become the seed of an idea that you can follow if you have more interviews, more, more examples, more transcripts, and so on. Interpretation is not coding. It's not a technique of categorizing. It's, it's a creative process. The second thing that students begin to see is the research is the instrument of of interpretation. There's a co-construction by a thoughtful, creative person engaging with the words of another thoughtful, creative person. It's not just data out there, right? There are human beings on both sides of this, this equation who have agency, who have ideas, who have perspectives. A very rich appreciation of that, which then leads to the issue of how supervision happens. 
Oh, great. What an, a fascinating example. I think it kind of makes me think of detective work. I don't know if you've seen the uh, latest uh, uh, incarnation of Sherlock Holmes, but he kind of he looks at one person and that person might say two words and then he'll be like, oh, well, from this, I can infer that you are a you know son of an abusive alcoholic who works <laughs> at a petrol station and um, at, at the age of 12 had a, a horrible accident. I don't know. <laughs> but I find it, you know, there is a speculative element to it, but there's quite a, um, but I, I assume, you, you you know, part of interpretation is putting all these little clues together. And that's quite fun, I think. And so so I, I love the way that you've expressed it. You know, there is an inherent curiosity uh, and investigation to qualitative uh, health research. So thank you for that. And yeah, let, let's talk about supervisors. I know that personally, my supervisors were super important to me in, in, get, in during my PhD and, and frankly afterwards and how in pushing me to achieve more conceptual depth. I, I remember thinking I'd done this brilliant analysis and then having a supervision and they're like, no, this is this is just description. This is not going to cut it. So can, can you tell me a bit about what you think is the sort of uh, ideal supervision process for, for achieving conceptual depth? Supervision picks up where classroom teaching leaves off. So when you're doing interpretive kind of work, it's extremely time intensive to supervise because, you know, as a mentor and a supervisor, you're involved from start to finish at every stage. You're looking with your student together at, you know, how an interview played out, how questions opened certain possibilities, how, you know, they closed off others, how the relationship felt during an interview. And of course, you're reading sometimes hundreds of pages of transcripts and having, you know, hours and hours of conversation. So I like to say that teaching is building the foundation, but supervision is peripatetic. It's like walking side by side with your supervisee, you know, mentoring just creative possibilities, you know, following those rocky trails of association, right? It's creating a safe but disciplined space for thought experiments to unwind. For some, you know, learning comes as a slow dawning realization of complexity. For others, there are these sort of periodic aha moments, right, where they suddenly realize there's a pattern and they can cross a threshold, you know, in their awareness. But it's exciting and hazardous, right? It's a, it's a relational journey, right, that where sometimes people get very, you know, they, I'm sure you got mad at your, your supervisor sometimes, and you felt great moments of horrific shame and horrific self-disappointment and, and frustration. So the supervisor has to be attuned to you know, where the student is and how how to present the rigorous aspect of research. You know, my students are very new to this kind of work, so I, I have to do a lot of co-processing with them. They're, you know, undergoing an extremely complex intellectual transformation, right? There's a lot of cognitive dissonance. You know, they're having thoughts they never had, right? They're wrestling with ideas that are new. So it's very emotionally charged. They're often, you know, protracted periods of stalemate, of agonizing self-doubt. You know, as a supervisor, you travel that journey with your, you know, with your supervisee. Right. No, thank you. I, I, I was very upset. I don't know if mad, I don't know if I can be uh, mad at my supervisor, but I was, I was, I was, I was very upset. <laughs> and I, I think, um, especially after several iterations, you keep coming back and it's still not enough and it's still not enough. But I also appreciated the challenge, but that's how I worked. Other people will work differently. But I, I, I thought it's, it's, it was a very frustrating, but also exhilarating to try and get to this promised land. And I, in particular, by the way, found it very hard to walk this line and still do between interpretation and speculation. Yes. Is that also something your your, your students have found? Do you go too far, perhaps, into the, the realms of... Uh... So 
back in dinosaur times, when I started my dissertation, I was uh, determined to find something important, you know, with a capital I important, right? I was going to be the leader in research on, you know, social injustice, right? I went in like a, like a, the, the justice bulldozer, right? I was going to hear the words and see the scenes, you know, and show what, you know, the, the wrongs that are really happening in the world, right? But then reality leaped out and got in my way and foiled all my grandiose plans because, you know, real life is actually a thousand times more complicated than the, you know, the pithy t-shirt slogans I had imagined that I was surely going to produce. You know, in part, it's a maturity issue, right? Everyone loves heroes and villains, right? Especially, you know, young people. But a simple story is a fantasy, right? It's a fantasy that, oh, let's, if I just treat it like it's simpler than it seems, then the world will become simpler than it seems, right? It, you know, finishing my dissertation will be easier than I dreaded, right? But it's just a dream, right? That maybe shortcuts are possible in life, right? That's, this is not how it really works, right? It's cute in a way, I think, because it's understandable. I've definitely had moments when students were, you know, like me, over eager to make, make a grand impact. Um, instead of lingering, you know, in that space of speculation and, and thought experiments, you know, exploring the flavors and the sarcasm of Bill Clinton's mother and, and you know, waiting for information, right? Just waiting openly with an open mind, right? They want to arrive early. You know, they want to be first at the gate. I, you know, I've had students hand me drafts where they've obviously rushed from a really subtle twist in a in narrative text to, to some major interpretation. And, you know, I hand back their papers marked with lots and lots of red ink. And I and I take I remove all those hurried, half digested, you know, but, you know, beautifully written usually notions. Right. And I say, you, you know, you don't have anywhere near enough to make this claim. Right. You, you just you have to rethink this because you leaped over a hundred other other possibilities. You know, you've, you've done a disservice service to yourself by missing all these other opportunities. And, you know, people are impatient and, and eager and, and sometimes grandiose. But, you know, on this planet, A does not lead to Z so quickly as that. So, so let's talk it over. You know, of course, you need to have a, a lot of goodwill with your student before you can, you know, get to that hard place in a conversation. But, you know, people look at me, right? Like, I'm, I don't look very threatening. So they, you know, it's okay. I can get away with saying hard things. A few times I've had supervisees who were very um, intellectually and philosophically disposed, particularly if they're, you know, concerned with social justice issues as I was. They tend to see large social structural patterns, you know, operating in every single word and sentence, right? Look at this injustice in, in this one word, right? Like, oh, you know, and, and I have to say, okay, that, that, that may be true, right? But I've had to talk to them about sort of prematurely arriving at that point. And I point out that in some ways, premature interpretation is actually a form of injustice itself right? It's a form of violence. Nobody wants for their words to be oversimplified and reduced or harnessed to conclusions which were arrived at hastily or, you know, with, with an agenda or in a way that diminishes the complexity of their lives and their actual achievements and their actual struggles, right? No, nobody wants to be a cartoon. Interpretive creativity without self-restraint is just abuse, really. It's a form of erasure. It's using someone else without acknowledging the depth of who they are. To encounter the face of another, as the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas has written, is to recognize that he is fundamentally irreducible. He is not yours. So as you see, I, I can I can move in very philosophical directions, which is way past what we're doing here in this interview. But philosophical ideas do play in the background of this kind of work, right? And when students rush, when they leap, you know, from, from speculating to concluding, they do bump up against ethics and integrity.
Thanks for that. Very wise words. That's something I've done several times as as someone who I think I've come to research partly through activism and, and politics and having ideas in my mind of what I want to do with research and what change I want to make with research. I think it's easy to fall into that trap and, and in a way become complicit in the violence that you are trying to uh, resist. So thank you so much for that. Uh, so I'm coming from a a sort of a tradition of, or, or I'm aspiring to do as much participatory research as possible and co-develop and co-produce uh, interpretations, I suppose. Uh, so I, I, I guess a part of that is valuing uh, people's lived experience and valuing different forms of knowledge and different forms of technical skill. It doesn't have to have been developed in academic context. So to what extent is, is what you talk about um, this supervisor-student relationship, a one-way thing, you know, students do they have anything to teach uh, experienced researchers about interpretation? So I'd, I'd be fascinated to know. So the answer to that, of course, is yes. People with significant life experience have, have plenty to teach anyone, not just researchers. But but let me say this. Nursing is a little different from other disciplines, right? It's not the student-professor you know, dynamic that may be typical in other fields. My students tend to be older, right? In the U.S., you usually work for many years before entering a PhD program. So when I work with them, they're usually in their 40s, right? I think that's about the average. They make probably twice my salary, right? They're confident and sophisticated. <laughs> By the time they meet me, they've shepherded me many lives into this world. They've shepherded many lives out. So, I, you know, I'm the one who has the lower status <laughs> by objective measure. So, you know, some of the power dynamics, right, that happen between novices and experts, you know, in, in a university setting really don't play out the same way. For example, one of the areas where my students have incredible insights is in organizational processes, right? They like patronage, professional turf war, informal networking, the gap between what is said and what is done. They, they understand racism. They understand how people boundary, mark the boundaries of identity and, and reinforce them. They understand, you know, how people humiliate one another in, in, in settings. They know all about that stuff from their own experience working in healthcare organizations, right? They, they don't need any prompting to recognize how power operates, but they don't necessarily have a critical vocabulary for describing those things and for situating those things in reference to broader structures. And when you equip them with the language, with the critical vocabulary, they it really sharpens their, their view. So I have tremendous confidence in my, in, in, in being able to learn from their insight once they get a vocabulary that makes it powerful, that makes their voice powerful. You've written a uh, commentary which uh, on on interpretive depth and, and perhaps the lack of it in, I think, used the novice uh, researchers which are coming to the field from a more clinical background. Uh, and I think that applies more broadly to health research. So you, you've talked about that in, in, in a commentary and you uh, mentioned the need for apprenticeship arrangements. So, so could you explain a bit more what you mean and, and how those apprenticeship arrangements might come to pass? Well, I have no answer for how how to create extended apprenticeship arrangements, right? Fewer and fewer nurses in the U.S. are enrolling in time-intensive PhD programs where they can do real qualitative research, where ideas, you know, have time to cook and where you can do, you know, the work of thought of experimentation, you know, in a disciplined, guided way. 
but you know, a higher education in the United States in general is that is in a crisis, right? Legislatures are banning the teaching of certain subjects. Books are being banned. Like librarians are being harassed, right? Schools are under intense fiscal pressure, and we, we've got a historical shift going on now in what higher education is about. So, you know, how do you incorporate longer range? relationships into student programs? I really don't know. And I think I'm afraid I've become another grouchy old lady who talks about how much better things were in the old days where we had time. I, I, I do. I'm pessimistic, actually. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. That's, um, I guess, food for thought, perhaps. Um, it does feel like back in the day, academia was uh, you know, better funded, more respected, uh, but I don't know, um, obviously. But it does make me think that Obviously, research can happen in many contexts, and perhaps there are sometimes better spaces, uh, more appropriate spaces than uh, universities to do that, where some of these long-term relationships can thrive. Well, I'm I'm certainly in my personal life, I'm a, an activist in in my community on also tenants' rights issues, for for example. And I think there are many venues where people learn, they acquire a vocabulary that gives precision to their observations. I don't know that that ends up disseminating findings. So I don't I don't know that that is you know the best venue for um, you know sharing information. So right, yes, you can learn right as a as an observer, but then what happens right? How do you, how can you get your observations and insights out there? So that's still a problem. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Okay. Well, to round off. Uh, are there any text resources, especially for supervisors or mentors or or people who are struggling with uh, with getting to the depth their supervisors need and, and requests very rightfully? Um, yeah, is, is there anything we can go to? Yeah, well, there are a few books that have come out recently on, um, t- you know, for those who are teaching qualitative research uh, methods, there's um, Swaminathan and Mulvey Hill 2018 book called Teaching Qualitative Research. That's quite nice. Uh, it's a short book. My absolute favorite book for students is Wurtz's uh, 2011. It's the Five Ways of Doing Qualitative Analysis. It's now an old book. I don't know how. I don't even know if it's available uh, in an ebook format. But that's it's a that's a lovely, lovely comparative analysis where the authors came from different schools of thought and they worked with the subject of their interviews to talk about how accurate their analyses were, right? They subjected their own work to the critique of their interviewees. It was, it's a very interesting. That's great. Thank you so much. That, that does sound fascinating. I think that's brilliant. And that's very useful because the next episode is going to be talking about lived experience and interpretation. So a wonderful note to end it on. So thanks for your time. Thanks for the listeners. And uh, we'll see you next time.